This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. How many of you, since this is the second time I've done this three-part series, how many of you are here for maybe the first time? Okay, a few of you, all right. <laughs> that makes it a little bit uh, different um, for how it may come across in the sense of it is, is a three-part journey uh, to get where we're going uh, today. So I hope uh, that uh, all of you have some familiarity with the uh, story of Job uh, because it is kind of important to understand where he has been and where he has gone through before we get to um, uh, trying to understand the end of, of the story of Job. Uh, I had... Uh, shared it, uh, as I mentioned in part one, as kind of Job without the prologue. What is it like to read Job without reading chapter one, which is where most pastors and teachers will always spend most of their time. You know, you will never hear a sermon on Job without uh, very heavy emphasis on chapter one. And, and I'm not saying that that's uh, wrong or incorrect or anything of the sort. The Holy Spirit obviously very wisely inspired uh, the story to be written that way. But uh, to help understand Job's mind, um, I kind of skipped that and I'm going to kind of return to it here at the end. So I'm taking a, a different kind of a journey uh, through the story of Job because I think it can help us think about the questions of theodicy uh, in a little bit of a, a different way because uh, the questions of the suffering of the righteous uh, will always uh, perplex uh, uh, the Christians uh, throughout this, our journeys, our own journeys through this life. And uh, so I wanted to try and kind of wrestle with it in a little bit of a different way. So. So bear with me if I, I'm going to presume that you know a little bit more about, about Job when we begin. I think it is time. Again, my name is Michael Yonker. I am studying theology uh, at Andrews University. I'm working my way through uh, my, my dissertation right now. Uh, and it is on, not on Job um, or any biblical passage per se, uh, but it is related to freedom and time. Uh, and uh, I think that those topics have a lot to do with uh, how we understand um, you know, theodicy and the questions of, of God's dealings with humanity throughout history and the great controversy. You have freedom and time as key components in, in every way. Uh, the Sabbath, you know, from the Sabbath to, to free will, uh, these issues are, are great, uh, of great importance and interest to us as Adventists. And so I'm looking a little bit at the philosophy behind it and how worldly people think about these questions and, and how it may help us understand theology. But it is great to try and apply it some uh, directly into the, into the Bible. All right, um, this is going to be uh, Job part three, and before I begin, I will offer a quick word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you that we can uh, be here again, uh, both here right now in this room, but also uh, larger on the larger picture here at GYC, where we can be sharing and experiencing uh, fellowship with our friends and others who have uh, come through their own journeys in life, uh, but to share uh, an interest, uh, and in many cases, a dedicated, passionate interest in understanding uh, you better and understanding your love for us. Uh, and we want to be better equipped to understand how we can share that love with others. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit will be with us uh, here and now, uh, that our minds may be uh, open and uh, impressed, um, and that uh, this may be uh, of a help as we move forward. Uh, in our own Christian walks. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Job part three. Um, and again, I'll give a little bit of an explanation on the title, uh, Wisdom's Recluse or Revealing the Veil. 
Uh, since some of you are new and I explained it last time, I kind of gave what my titles were about. Uh, but wisdom's recluse is referring to God. Is God wisdom's recluse? Is he hiding somehow? Is God hiding? Is, is the author of wisdom hiding uh, behind something? Is, why is he sometimes uh, difficult to perceive and understand? So wisdom's recluse or, you notice there's a question mark there, or revealing the veil. Uh, and as you may recall, part one, my whole uh, point behind uh, introducing the story of Job without the prologue to kind of step right into the life of uh, the suffering uh, servant uh, of God, Job, and to understand his perspective. Um, I had said, you know, what's it like? Again, you know, normally uh, reality, there is kind of a, uh, you know, uh, like for a play, you have the curtain uh, and you have uh, like, you know, the, the dressing room and so forth. And there's kind of this, this rest of the story uh, behind what happens out on, on, the, on the play or so to speak, what's happening in life. Uh, and how Job is not given access to the behind-the-scenes picture. He does not know uh, that uh, he's going to be wearing these boils, um, not only physically, uh, but also as part of a, a bigger picture. They are, they are makeup, so to speak, as for, uh, in, a, in a certain sense, uh, for what God is trying to demonstrate, uh, even though they are, it is very real and, and physically uh, painful to him. But I'm just trying to, was trying to explain how, how it appears as if you don't know the rest of the story. Uh, so that's why we're going to come to uh, this revealing the veil side of it. So what is the veil? Uh, what is, um, like, you know, when you have two rooms and you have a partition in between and you're always wondering, you know, like, what's on the other side? And you just kind of take the veil for granted. Um, and I'm going to be talking about how uh, God's uh, veil is what, uh, you know, his covering is actually what he really is. And so revealing the veil, explaining what God is, really is. Um, and pointing towards the issues of character and so forth in Job uh, is the story behind the title. I enjoy uh, interesting titles. So We are left with, uh, continuing in, we are left with Job and uh, his suffering. Here are, again, his three friends. As you recall, they, I had mentioned the seven-day stare down as uh, they waited for him to uh, you know, begin speaking. As you recall, he had uh, kind of been just you know, sitting there suffering in silence, and they go through seven days of kind of you know, you know, suffering with him, so to speak, but it's apparently not so much suffering with him as preparing their ammunition to assault Job. And we covered all of that last time of how the friends uh, went through round after round, taking turns with different personalities, with different language, but spiraling upward and upward all towards the, the goal of Job, you have done something to deserve this. Uh, and that was their conclusion. So I had the friends kind of staring at him, anticipating their arguments for judging this man uh, and seeing him as worthy of what he was uh, struggling through. But we went through all of that last time, uh, so we will continue. I want to ask uh, a question here. What really is the issue for Job from his point of mind? Uh, you know, what, what is really happening uh, for Job? And, um, of course, in the background, uh, there's going to be another question. What is God's issue for Job? What is God's perspective on the issue, on the matter, on the uh, painful saga that he is experiencing? Uh, but for Job, would you say that uh, the issue for him is how God appears to be treating him? That seems to be the question that he has to ask. Why is God treating me this way uh, when I have done uh, everything you know, right? I have been a, a good person. I have tried to do the right thing. Um, why is God treating me this way? And you will see this reflected uh, right in Job's words, uh, how you know, he is reacting to what appears to be God uh, punishing him directly. He can see it no other way. He has no understanding that is revealed in the book of Job, per se, of uh, any divine counsel in heaven. Job chapter 1 is not part of his story. That is behind the curtain that he has not seen. And so 
he has to admit, right from the beginning, early in uh, the book, Job 6.4, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison, the poison of what God seems to be doing to me. God's terrors are marshaled against me. There is no doubt that Job uh, is going to fall down so low that he has to assume uh, especially, and his friends are not discouraging this, this uh, perspective that God is doing this. And Job admits that without any curtain drawn aside, uh, the special manifestation, the uniqueness of his punishment, uh, the, the circumstances, again, we went over that. This is just um, incredible. If you experience something like what Job did, uh, servant after servant coming in in a day like this, you would be thinking, this is unusual. This is, this is not normal. And so Job uh, thinks the same way. And this is the arrows of the Almighty. He has no other way but to look at it uh, as God doing this to him. Um, continuing forward, I just wanted to go over some of Job's words so you really can uh, get uh, how he really feels about this. Job 16, uh, 10 chapters later from the, the earlier words there. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. Imagine yourself again having gone through anything remotely like what Job has done and how you might be inclined to think and feel. My opponent fastens on me, and who, who is the opponent here that's referenced? It has to be God, at least as Job is, is uh, using it here. Uh, fastens on me his piercing eyes. Men open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to evil men and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. Imagine again, as we have gone through previously, uh, Job's... Uh, the, the, the tragedies that had befallen him and how he must be uh, feeling and thinking to say things uh, like this. Um, here is again as I have been doing uh, throughout all three uh, parts, um, collecting pictures that I have found, um, artistic renditions, and here is God smiting Job um, and his wife uh, looking on I think in this, in this case. Uh, so it's, it's God that's doing this. He has uh, laid his arrows upon him. Job demonstrates, it is important, that Job demonstrates his theology quite clearly, really, uh, for worse or for better. Um, again, Job 19.6, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Job uh, does go, uh, we've gone over how far Job goes, but uh, he, does, he does go so far. He goes to the precipice of uh, accusing God of doing this, uh, Job 19. Um, and uh, he, he also describes the impact of what this has done to him. It's not simply uh, made him, you know, again, it's not simply physical suffering. It's not the loss of all of his. We went over, remember, what were the two tests that come upon him near the beginning? And it's uh, the loss of wealth and health. Wealth and health. Uh, and then, but more than that, he, it's the loss of, you know, social uh, relations. Uh, he has put my brethren far from me, and my acquaintances are wholly estranged from me. Kinsfolk and close friends have failed me. Uh, here, you know, no doubt a little bit, we went over last time how uh, his friends even brought up the loss of his children as an example of why Job was suffering divine punishment. You know, your children did evil, and God has killed them. You know, and, and they were kind of the, you know, the beginning and the end of the day uh, signifying, you know, his, his 
suffering. So they, they were poking at him with, you know, uh, heated irons, and uh, Job kind of returns that. My kinsfolk and close friends, my wife, you know, uh, and my friends here have failed me. The guests in my house have forgotten me. My maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their eyes. I called my servant, uh, but he gives no answer. Again, we went over uh, perhaps the, the time frame. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't reveal, but how long Job went, was suffering through this. Um, you know, between uh, the, the two different phases of, of losing uh, all of his, you know, sheep and cattle and, and property and then beca uh, becoming uh, covered with boils, we don't know. I, um, I must beseech him with my mouth, his servant. I am repulsive to my wife, loathsome to the sons of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise up, uh, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. Um, it is difficult for us um, and I did have, uh, you know, last time, uh, you know, uh, a couple people, you know, share with me of some, some situations that have come close to this, uh, where they have, for a variety of circumstances, had unfortunate uh, things befall them personally uh, in, in different ways. And, um, you know, they have had friends that have, you know, cold-shouldered them, uh, even though in their mind, in their heart, you know, there was nothing uh, that should have altered the relationship. But... Um, uh, you know, nevertheless, uh, circumstances uh, let it that uh, other people judge them and, and read into their heart things that were not there, um, you know, and, and how hard that is. It is very difficult. Uh, and Job is expressing that that is what he is feeling, that, you know, everyone, the world has turned against me, not only my God, but the world. Uh, my friends, the world, everyone has turned against me. And by the way, I will come back to it in a moment, but this is at the beginning of Job chapter 19. Remember that, because Job chapter 19 is a very important chapter uh, in Job. Here again, um, another one of the uh, art uh, renditions of this that I collected. I think I shared this one before. But uh, all the friends lined up, you know, accusing Job, his wife pleading with him, curse God and die. Uh, don't you see the big picture, Job? Clearly, God has judged you. But Job holds fast. Job's final defense is his integrity. He cannot buy into their story of what is happening to him. He cannot do it. Uh, Job 23, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. Catch again the uh, connections of he's talking about God here, uh, and then so follow the transition. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, God. I'm backwards. I cannot perceive where the good God I, I used to know is. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold it. When he turns on the right, I cannot see the good God I, I thought I knew. But he knows the way that I take. Here he is professing a faith. Uh, this is chapter 23. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed. And this is, again, critical uh, to understanding uh, Job. I have not departed from the command of his lips. What theology is Job revealing here? What kind of picture, what understanding does he have of God uh, that may be different than simply the arrows of God are arrayed against me? Job is expressing an awareness of moral uh, law. He is expressing an awareness of God's commands. He is expressing a previous relationship with God. Uh, that seems to have been changed, but he does not know why. But he says, I know God, and I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than necessary food. So he is professing, look, you know, my friends, you are uh, accusing me of great wickedness, but I have done nothing special to warrant this. There is nothing. I have been immorally upstanding, uh, and I have always tried to do the right thing. 
Uh, he continues this um, in Job 27 in his next dialogue. As long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. However, to go back to Job 19, remember, uh, he had uh, begun this chapter with um, uh, describing how he had been in, become a complete outcast. Uh, but he ends that chapter with this amazing reversal. Uh, incredible words in Job. Oh, that my words were written. And uh, I think he was a prophet too. Um, oh, that my words were written, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were graven in the rock forever. And I think once uh, the words have become part of the word of God, they are indeed part of the rock forever. Um, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall, I shall see God. Uh, we've gone over the authorship uh, of Job and how uh, Ellen White uh, indicates that Moses was the one, which I believe and accept. Um, critical scholarship cannot you know, confirm this, uh, but um, it is still interesting to note, uh, again, that uh, Job is, appears to be outside the covenant line. Uh, he is uh, evidently early uh, in history, around the time of Abraham, thereabouts. Um, and uh, how and why and what theology exactly he had access to, uh, I don't know, we don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, it seems to be evident from early on that Job did have a knowledge of uh, a Redeemer, that he knew that there would be a Redeemer, um, and that uh, there was an afterlife, that after his skin has been destroyed, uh, that in my flesh I shall nevertheless see God, uh, whom I shall see on my side, he will be on my side, and my eyes shall behold him and not another. And uh, Job expresses this incredible, uh, you know, with, with all the world abandoning me, nevertheless, when I think of this, my heart faints within me at the thought of meeting uh, my God, whom I know that I have uh, had integrity before. Um, now, uh, I added this in also um, at the request uh, last time because uh, someone had asked, well, what about Elihu? Uh, character versus ignorance. And um, I wanted to just touch on uh, the fourth friend uh, because some have tried to find in Elihu uh, some, some extra answers or responses to uh, the question of Job's suffering. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to cover it very briefly. Um, and uh, I think Elihu is an important part of the story of Job. Um, we have no uh, extra biblical inspired counsel on the role or uh, significance of Elihu uh, from Ellen White, uh, etc. Um, but, uh, but Elihu does uh, prepare the way for God's speeches. And since this lecture is about God, uh, which is where we're going here very shortly, I did want to cover Elihu. Uh, and he does note uh, when he talks to Job, uh, he says, Listen to me, behold my open mouth, uh, in my tongue my mouth speaks. Uh, from the uprightness of my heart, he is trying to uh, take a, a middle path from the more critical friends uh, that Job has experienced before. Uh, but uh, Job, um, but Elihu uh, tries to take, um, you know, uh, a, a softening tone, uh, and that is appreciated. I think that uh, he is more down the right path in a helpful sense uh, to Job than his uh, other three friends were. Um, so, you know, he's speaking, or he claims to be speaking sincerely. Of course, he isn't the only one to have made that claim, but I think Elihu does mean it, uh, even though he is young and has been waiting here to explode with his, his words uh, to, uh, uh, you know, over and against the friends to Job. But uh, I think that he is sincere. 
Um, and he makes the claim, the Spirit of God has made me. Uh, some have seen evidence here for uh, the fact that he may be claiming inspiration. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, commentators are, are not certain. Uh, I'm speaking of Adventist commentators as well as, as others um, on what role Elihu really has. It's, we're, not, we're not certain. Uh, but he does claim that the breath of the Almighty has, has, has given him life. And he says, answer me if you can. Uh, set your words in order. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was formed from a piece of clay. So he definitely takes a more humble stance than his friends had been taking. Uh, Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Um, surely you have spoken in my hearing and I have heard the sound of your words. You say I am clean without transgression. So Job is here uh, trying to you know, summarize what he has been hearing from, from Job. Uh, you say I am clean without transgression. I am pure and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, uh, he, God, finds occasion against me. That's what you're claiming, uh, you know, Elihu summarizing Job's thoughts. And he counts me as his enemy, and he puts my feet in his stocks and watches all my paths. This is what I hear you saying. Uh, Elihu summarizes, I think, correctly what Job has been saying, that God mistreats him without a reason, and that he is doing these things without justification and in some sort of capricious way, that God has been unfair in singling out Job for this punishment. Now, uh, Elihu's response... Um, I think his answer can be summarized uh, fairly briefly. Uh, Behold, in this you are not right, Job, um, and I will answer you. And his answer is, God is greater than man. <laughs> now, um, I think that those are, um, uh, in a manner of speaking, correct. So I am sympathetic to Elihu being a step on the way, uh, a step on the pathway towards uh, responding to Job and, and giving a correct answer. However, um, I'm not satisfied that this is the correct answer to the question of the suffering, that we can just leave it there. I think that that's not, not enough, that we have not penetrated deeply enough into the story of Job uh, to just say that God is greater than man. Uh, this is true, Elihu is correct, and he does prepare the way for what God himself will say, uh, but um, I'm not satisfied that this is where we want to leave the story when it comes to the suffering of the righteous. Um, now, you may have noted that there is an important chapter in uh, the latter third here of, of Job uh, that uh, seems to be a little bit out of place. And now is the time to uh, go to that diversion uh, before heading towards the conclusion. Job chapter 28 is one of the, uh, in my opinion, most incredible, uh, beautiful, uh, and out of place chapters in a certain sense of the flow of, of you know, the, the context of, of the book uh, that you'll find. Uh, in the entire Bible, it just appears there, um, and it is a, a meditation. And um, that, uh, and again, commentators are not sure uh, whether or not this, these are Moses' words as the author of the book, as a narrator. Whether or not these are Moses' words, or whether or not they are actually somehow part of Job's uh, dialogue, it certainly does not seem to come from one of the friends. Uh, but we're not quite sure uh, what exactly Job 28 is doing here and who wrote it, whether or not it is Moses or Job. Uh, but in either case, the Holy Spirit clearly inspired it to be placed right here in Job, this chapter on wisdom. And um, you may have remembered uh, last time I'd shared uh, at the end, remember about miracles uh, and how unique they are in the, the concept of, of the uh, normal, ordinary world and how they relate to the mind and how the mind in action, remember that amazing quote from Ellen White when she says that the mind in action is like the miracle working power of God, end quote. That is an incredible quotation. Uh, the mind in action is like the miracle working power of God. So uh, we're trying to you know, uh, look for something that is outside of the common sense, ordinary way of uh, thinking about problems. Um, and so Job 28 is, the, is the, the key point for this connection. What is wisdom? 
What is wisdom? We will read Job 28 a little bit and uh, remind you to uh, think after the, the biblical book. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold which they refine. Remember last time I had uh, talked about, again, the, the miracles and uh, how the world's miracles are, what, wealth and health? And I showed you Tutankhamun, you know, and his wealth, but then remember it ends with not much health. <laughs> but um, nevertheless, that the world's miracles, the world's wonders, what is most amazing to the worldly man uh, is, is uh, wealth. Uh, and here is uh, your silver and your gold. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold which they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. It continues. Men put an end to darkness, and search out to the farthest bound the ore and gloom and deep darkness. And the commentators see here, like perhaps the early use of lamps that miners might use as they dig into the earth, uh, and shafts into deep into the earth to find their, the gold and jewels. They open shafts in a valley away from where men live. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang afar from men. They swing to and fro. And remember, what is this chapter doing in Job? What is this chapter doing in Job? Why is this here? What an interesting you know, diversion, um, this search for gold by men. They swing to and fro. In verses 7 and 8, Job says, There is nothing in nature like man's desperate search for gold. That path no, uh, that path no bird of prey knows, uh, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. So the animal kingdom seems to be removed from this obsessive quest for treasure, for gold. Animals pay no attention to the jewels. It is men who seek after these things, and they will go to almost any limit uh, to find them. Verse 9, man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He binds up the streams so that they do not trickle. Here, again, indicating some, some knowledge uh, from the author on, on methods of mining uh, in early and uh, biblical times. Um, and the thing that is hid, he brings forth to light. So man is incredibly successful uh, in his efforts to uh, find this gold and bring it to light. Miners have often gone, uh, again explaining the verses there, to dam up water, gone to efforts to dam up waters that seeps into their minds in order to work them. And Job shows how man gives up almost anything and goes to any lengths to find gold. And then finally, we get to the point of what this has to do with the story of Job. But where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know the way to it and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me and the sea says it is not with me. Remember um, my discussion of natural science and how uh, your, your atheist scientist, uh, there is no other world. All that there is, is what nature reveals. Uh, the laws of nature uh, and uh, what it reveals about uh, all, manner, all issues of life, whether it be moral issues or whatever else, if you want to answer the question of, uh, you know, as has been discussed here today and, and there are other conferences dealing with issues of uh, sexuality, homosexuality, all these sorts of things uh, which are kind of moral issues. Again, for the secular person, the answer can only be found uh, through studying man's nature. Uh, studying the physicalness of, of reality. Uh, but uh, so there, there is no other world. There is no other place where uh, superior insight or knowledge or thinking or wisdom can be found. 
Um, and uh, Job agrees, uh, meaning agrees that it's not in nature. <laughs> Rather, he disagrees with the atheists or the scientists that there is um, nothing else. But where shall wisdom be found? It is not in uh, the deep or the sea. It is not with me. Here we see the reason uh, for his analogy also for the search uh, for men's search for gold and their, their, their wealth, silver and treasures. He says men will go to any lengths to find these treasures. They will work and toil and sweat all day long in the sun if they think that there is gold to be found. Um, they will do anything, uh, but they cannot, um, or, or rather they, they will not find these things in the, uh, in the earth. But uh, they likewise will nevertheless search for the answers to the riddles of life. They will continue to, to probe, uh, but uh, where can those answers be found? They can find the gold, but they cannot find wisdom through their pickaxes and tools and mine shafts and whatever else may, that they may use to look for uh, insight. The wisdom is elusive. It hides it is behind, you know, it is some sort of, you know, it is hidden behind something, behind a veil of some sort. Uh, it is hidden. And now, what is this wisdom that Job is talking about? Uh, all through the book, we have been confronted with the question, why does Job, or does God treat Job this way? Why has uh, God been uh, making Job to suffer in this special, especially painful way? We have gone over again the dramaticness of what Job has gone through. Why uh, has he suffered this way? Job has, remember without the prologue, Job has no knowledge of the challenge that uh, Satan has made uh, to God about him. He has no knowledge of this, so he, uh, Job does not understand. Uh, at this point, we cannot assume he knows anything of this. Uh, but we often, nevertheless, no doubt, feel this way ourselves. Uh, you know, we often, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, while we have the benefit of reading Job's prologue and knowing that there is a greater context, uh, we don't know what is behind the curtain or the veil of our life, why we might be suffering, why our friends or our family might be suffering. Um, and, uh, you know, again, and I, I mention it, you know, and it, it is, uh, will be a continuing for a short time more. Uh, struggling with, you know, in my own family, my, my step-grandmother who converted to Adventism about 15 years ago from uh, a, a, an early Catholic childhood to atheism to Adventism. And uh, when she embraced the message, uh, she, you know, embraced it wholly. Uh, and she was in good health at the time. She was, had been blessed with good health. And, at the, you know, and from a, a life of general good health, she embraced the health message you know, on top of it and, um, and was in a great health. She loved to walk and do things. And uh, she would still be uh, you know, a relatively young grandmother to me, uh, my step-grandmother, uh, age-wise. But over the last five years, um, she has very rapidly seen every part of her body, uh, and, and the doctors have no exact diagnosis, but her body has you know, begun to fall apart, uh, and she is now in, in a very, you know, very difficult place. And it is difficult, uh, even though um, we no longer, she can't communicate anymore, and we can no longer really understand what she is thinking, how her mind might be working, but it, um, I can observe uh, and feel the, the, um, uh, the challenges and pain of my grandfather as, as he uh, cares for her uh, and, and uh, you know, experiences this, this very sudden and seemingly unfair um, you know, way that, that, uh, that his, his wife you know, has, has fallen upon and, and how difficult it is to understand. It is hard to understand why would this happen uh, and why would she be treated this way. And, and there, you know, the questions we cannot know, what is going on or why uh, or part of what reason or purpose, uh, if, if any at all, under uh, the sinful world that we live in that uh, she has had to experience this. But um, we all will have access to these kinds of difficulties, whether it is uh, closer family or friends, there will be people that do not know why they are struggling in the way that they are. Uh, so we can definitely, I think, uh, 
connect with Job in asking, why does God uh, treat me this way? Why has God treated Job this way? Um, but here we have information. Uh, I mean, we have from Job, we have information that he doesn't have. He has no knowledge of the challenge Satan has made, uh, but we often do feel this way. Job 28, back to Job 28. Um, in verses 15 to 17, is described how wisdom cannot be found and cannot be bought, as I have uh, already begun to, to share. It cannot be gotten for gold. Uh, he makes the connection directly between the, the, uh, the wealth and wisdom. It cannot be gotten for gold, and silver cannot be weighted at its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. He makes it very clear. However, he ends Job 28, the chapter on wisdom, with the words, God understands the way to it. And he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. So God does know where it is and God knows what it is. Uh, when he gave to the wind its weight and meted out the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the, of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and he searched it out. So God knows where it is. And he said to man, and this is the last verse of chapter 28, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from what? Evil is what? Understanding. Now, what did Job claim? And I think accurately, that's the purpose of the book. Did he claim to have a knowledge of God's words that related to evil? Did he claim to have a knowledge of God's morality? Yes, he did. Uh, Job is not explicitly clear in spelling out the Ten Commandments or anything of that sort, uh, but Job very clearly said that I have treasured your words. I know who you are, God. I know what you are like. I know what you're really like. I have done what you have commanded. I have been a moral person. I have been a moral person. And what is it that being a moral person is supposed to grant one? Understanding. So what is going on here? Can you understand the magnitude of the situation that Job has fallen upon? To depart from evil is understanding. And how does that relate to wisdom? Uh, another picture, um, because we are now getting ready to arrive at God's uh, speeches and uh, a conclusion. This is God appearing in the whirlwind uh, before Job and his friends. God's responses. Now, Elihu and some of the others, again, making quick past reference to what I've shared before, um, they had all made the claim that uh, God is all-knowing and all-powerful. God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Now, were Job's friends, all four of them, were they correct in this? Yes, they were. God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful. That's what's very interesting about God's responses. I'm not going to read them all uh, right here because they're long and they are very interesting and, and poetic, uh, but uh, God makes clear, and this is an amazing thing, and again, it is, they are worth reading because these are the two longest speeches uh, of God in the entire Bible, and what are they about? It's interesting to, to you know, hear what they're about. What are the two longest uh, speeches from God to man in the entire Bible about? And they, are, uh, they, are, they make the claim, they assert very plainly that God is all-knowing, and God is all-powerful. Has God offered a response or an answer that Job did not know? No. However, why did God say this? 
Why did God say this? Think about that. Why did God choose to respond by simply saying, I am all-knowing and I am all-powerful? Why does he affirm Job's enemies before saying, Job is right? Job is the one that's right about me. But yes, friends, I am all-knowing and I am all-powerful. Think about that. Think about that. Here's uh, God speaking to Job through the whirlwind and the storm. Great controversy as I prepare for a different way of thinking about the question of theodicy and suffering. When Job heard the voice of the Lord out of the whirlwind, he exclaimed, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Ellen White, this is from Great Controversy. It was when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord and heard the cherubim crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, that he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. Paul, after he was caught up into the third heaven and heard things which it was not possible for a man to utter, speaks of himself as less than the least of all saints. It was the beloved John who leaned on Jesus' breast and beheld his glory that fell as one dead before the feet of the angel. Job's response to God is, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. A poetic way of saying, I know nothing. You are all-knowing and you are all-powerful. Job gave a uh, second response. You know, this is uh, between and after the, the first two of God's speeches. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and, all, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. And by the way, this is one of the other exceptions to Palah <laughs> that is in the Bible. I've declared things too miraculous for me, um, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, what does Job have to repent for beyond simply the fact that he is human? He has claimed that God has done these things. Why does God's responses, why do they leave? And that was the question that I had, and I think almost every reader of Job has had, that has tried to wrangle an answer to theodicy out of God's responses. Um, why is it that uh, the responses just uh, fall upon the... Uh, God's claim to knowledge and power. Is that all the story that there is? I think that, in, on one sense, you can say that the book of, uh, study of the book of Job does do for us um, a lot towards helping us see that life is, in many ways, basically a mystery. However, I think that mystery, as I've shared, can be applied to a great number of uh, things more than, uh, than we often uh, assume, like human freedom in the first place. We don't even know how we are free, let alone uh, many other things. We are surrounded by mystery. We cannot comprehend it all. Uh, it is painted reality. Life is painted on too large a canvas. This is all true. It is too great and involved for us to grasp it all. We cannot perceive it all. The ways of God are beyond us many, many times over. And yet, I think... Job is gradually learning in the midst of his pain to trust the God who is there, so trust that he will come up with the adequate answers and that he is working out a purpose in line with his love. But the question I have is, is there still more that can be said? But I'll come back to that. I want to read from Ellen White, just to kind of, again, prepare uh, your minds to think differently. Um, and this does also highlight the role of mystery. Thus, many, many, many err from the faith, 
and are seduced, this is from Great Controversy, are seduced by the devil. Men have endeavored to be wiser than their creator. Human philosophy has attempted to search out and explain mysteries which will never be revealed through the eternal ages. If men would but search and understand what God has made known of himself and his purposes, they would obtain such a view of the glory, majesty, and power of Jehovah that they would realize their own littleness and would be content with that which has been revealed for themselves and their children. It is a masterpiece of Satan's deceptions to keep the minds of men searching and conjecturing in regard to that which God has not made known and that which he does not intend that we shall understand. It was thus that Lucifer lost his place in heaven. He became dissatisfied because all the secrets of God's purposes were not confided to him, and he entirely disregarded that which was revealed concerning his own work and the lofty position assigned him. By arousing the same discontent in the angels under his command, he caused their fall. Now he seeks to imbue the minds of men with the same spirit and to lead them also to disregard the direct commands of God. Ellen White elsewhere summarizes, From the scripture we may learn much regarding God's dealings with his people. And when calamity comes, unless the Lord indicates plainly that this calamity is sent as a punishment of those who are departing from the word of counsel, unless he reveals that it has come as a retribution for the sins of the workers, let every man refrain from criticism. Let us be careful not to reproach anyone. Now, I've shared all of that because I think it's important to play up the knowledge and power of God and the mystery of God. They are important to keep in mind when we're trying to wrestle with the question of suffering. However, as I have also tried to uh, you know, inform you, um, that there is another way to think about it. How did we, or how could Job, or what was uh, chapter 28's conclusion to the matter of how we can understand and better understand wisdom? What was it? What was the method? What really mattered, as I said, remember uh, Job's, or Satan's test to Job's, what, what did they involve? How did Satan think he could uh, test Job? Through what? Health and wealth? You know, and he thought that through health and wealth that uh, Job would uh, you know, fail the test and would fall and would uh, do something wrong. Uh, but what did uh, God really care about? What was the test from God's point of view? What was God's test to Job, so to speak? What was God's test? What was it about? His character. And by the way, whose character? Both, both of them in this sense. God was testing Job over his character, over something that uh, was located in that intangible uh, realm of wisdom, that, which is only accessible by submitting yourself to God. Um, I think that uh, when God chooses to respond by saying, I am all-knowing and I am all-powerful, there is left... Uh, in the additional words by God that Job has spoken of me what is right, uh, that what really is the issue for Job is the fact that he does know God and that the moral character of God is actually the answer to really understanding why suffering can exist. Um, now, there are many things and many ways and reasons why I think that people do suffer. Uh, and as a broader answer to theodicy, we have to be careful, as Ellen White had cautioned us, that we do not always understand what is happening. Uh, my grandmother, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't know why. Um, I do not want to uh, presume that there is some grand test uh, at stake here. Um, I think that when the tests are clear, that God will reveal clearly what is going on. Um, and God does judge some people for as acts of judgment, and he usually makes that very, very, very clear. Um, and uh, we can suffer what I would call uh, general evil, 
Um, you know, like, for example, when friends suffer and I suffer along with them, why am I suffering? You know, as, well, I'm suffering because of them and whatever circumstances, whatever act, you know, whatever may be tied up with their life, um, I suffer with them. And, and again, there's no answer to that other than the fact that I care about them. Um, and we also can suffer, uh, and this is a very complex one, and I am going to share this because it really changed the way that I think about it, even though um, it is a little bit different than Job, but I think that it, it, it has some parallels that are important. Uh, and it will come from the life of Abraham. And some of you may have not, not heard or read uh, these words before uh, because uh, they, uh, they're often ignored. But uh, unfortunately, they come from the pen of Ellen White. Um, and it has to do with for our good. And uh, this is remarkable about uh, changing the minds. Uh, I do have another slide here, though. The enemy is often permitted, these are Ellen White's words again, uh, to try God's people in just such a way as Job has tried. So be comforted with the thought that in one way or another, to one degree or, or less, uh, we all uh, may suffer uh, in ways that Job has tried. When Job's friends came to him and began reminding him of his sins and to urge that he was suffering because of divine displeasure, they were doing a work that was, not, uh, that was wholly uncalled for. So remember that when you are interacting with and engaging with uh, the people around you. Uh, remember that uh, you need to really know, uh, even more than the friends claim to, that um, when someone is suffering, that it is because they've done something wrong. Uh, there may be a time and a place uh, when you, we can share that, but uh, be careful, be cautious, and, and uh, usually uh, you know, in, in the, uh, uh, enlist the aid of, of the wisdom of others. Um, you need to know that God is, is telling you to, to share that with someone. Uh, Job endured the test. Ellen White does refer to it as a test. Uh, he proved uh, true to God. That was what God's test about Job was, was all about, the fact that Job would prove true to God. After his trial, his blessings were manifold, and in this particular instance, God did so see that the prosperity that uh, would attend the closing years of his life uh, would give the enemy and all of us uh, no opportunity to exult over the former misfortunes of God's faithful servant. So uh, it did matter uh, that in this case he would be restored and blessed. Um, and so the answer to Satan's question from Job 1 from the prologue, from behind the curtain, does Job fear God for nothing? Think about the question carefully. Does Job fear God for nothing? What is the correct answer to this question? Can you think about what, what might be the appropriate answer? This is a trick question. Does Job fear God for nothing? No. Why, though? That is the question. Why? Mm-hmm. Health and wealth. That's right. That's right. Right. Because of who God is. That's right. Because of who God is. And that's what's so, so amazing when you saw Job's words that, uh, and think about this, think about this uh, when, in your own life. When Job is willing to say basically in the same chapter that it is God, you know, and, and right in parallel, you know, uh, consecutive discourses that, that God is the one who has aligned his arrows against me. And yet I have treasured his words and, because I really know who God is. I know who God is because I know his character. And what about God is more important to me? How he appears or who he is, how he appears or who he is. And uh, I think that this lesson has uh, important ramifications for us as Adventists. 
uh, as we encounter uh, the last days and the world that we live in, is that who is, what is our question? Is our question about, or are we depending upon God to reveal himself right now and right you know, here and whatever in my life as the all-knowing, all-powerful God, you know, the one of lightning bolts and, and so forth, or are we more concerned with uh, God revealing himself through his character? Are we more concerned with revealing, uh, you know, through the church awesomeness and large conferences just in their own, for their own sake, or are we more concerned with actually revealing and understanding who God really is? So is God more concerned with uh, his power and his knowledge, really, in his answers? Well, yes, he says, I am these things. Make no, no doubt about it. Have no doubt in your mind that I am all-knowing and I am all-powerful, and that does matter uh, for me as God to have these things. It does matter. Well, what really matters is that God has a moral character and that the moral dimension of God is outside of all of this cause and effect uh, health and wealth world that is around us. The world of sin is saturated. The world of, of everyday living is saturated with uh, the human strive for gold and silver, jobs, degrees, wealth, and health. That is what we are obsessed with. That is the only thing that the world acknowledges even exists. In fact, that's the only thing that Satan wants to acknowledge really exists. Satan does not want to acknowledge that there is another dimension to God. God says you know, to Satan, yes, I am the all-knowing one. I am the all-powerful one. Make no mistake about that. But there is another dimension to what God is interested in. And so when Satan answers the Lord, or Satan responds to the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? God's response is, let's see. <laughs> you know, and, and Job's, Job's you know, attitude is, is, yes, I serve God uh, because of who God is. Even if he appears to me differently, I serve God because of who he really is, his moral side, and that is what really matters. I want to, um, and I have just enough time, I think, to make it through this, share another story of someone who suffered a lot, uh, uh, not uh, as much um, throughout uh, in uh, his life quite as much as Job, uh, but it, it does matter and it does draw some parallels to how we view God and why how we view God makes such a difference in how we view the types of, of circumstances and sufferings that we may encounter. And of course, the diversity of sufferings are infinite and um, you know, how it, it applies to us is always a personal matter. But um, I want to point toward um, Abraham. You may remember the story of Abraham. And, uh, he had a pretty severe ordeal too, didn't he? If you remember Mount Moriah, Genesis chapter 22, um, when he had to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Was that not, uh, at that time, a Jobian moment? <laughs> you know, he couldn't believe what God was asking him to do. This was agonizing. This was agonizing to Job. Um, and uh, I, I won't read all of these quotes, but... Um, uh, you know, Abraham believed God, as is noted afterwards, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So uh, Abraham passed the test of suffering that he was given. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, I will um, go on here. I'm not going to read all of these. Uh, there are many ways uh, that we can fail to understand the appropriate relation of faith and works. Um, Ellen White has some quotations uh, on only believing in Christ, those Christians who say only believe and, and be saved, uh, and I think that that has been uh, determined to not be an adequate picture. Um, you can't only believe, you must also uh, have obedience, and, and Abraham manifested that. Uh, genuine faith will be manifest in obedience. Um, and through type and promise, uh, God preached the gospel to Abraham, and uh, I will not read the, the rest of this. I hope you do know the story of Genesis 22. Uh, and the offering. But um, I wanted to point at this. Um, it was to impress 
This is from Patriarchs and Prophets. It was to impress Abraham's mind with the reality of the gospel, as well as to test his faith that God commanded him to slay his son. Now, I don't think there's anyone here that has not grasped that side of the story, uh, that there was uh, a test to his faith, uh, that, you know, and that is why God commanded him to slay his son. And it was to impress, therefore, through this, uh, the example of the reality of the gospel. You know, we know the, the type and anti-type and how this was used to demonstrate God's love for uh, his son and so forth. Uh, so we can see that the parallels, these are somewhat well-known. Um, however, uh, God also, uh, Ellen White notes, God desired to prove the loyalty of his servant before all heaven. Uh, to demonstrate that nothing less than perfect obedience can be accepted and to open before heaven, before angels, before men and angels, uh, the plan of salvation. Um, and she notes again at the top, sorry, reading it, uh, I added these late and I, they are long. The sacrifice required of Abraham was not alone for his own good, nor solely for the benefit of succeeding generations, but it was for, also for the instruction of the sinless intelligences of heaven and of other worlds. Have you ever really focused on that side of it? That it really wasn't just for men and for us and for the human posterity of those who would read the word of God, but it was also to help the angels understand that at that time in, in human history, the angels were still struggling to understand what was going on. Have you ever thought about that side of it? It's, it's pretty awesome what uh, God was doing through, through Abraham. Um, and all heaven beheld with wonder and admiration Abraham's unfaltering obedience. All heaven applauded his fidelity. Satan's accusations were shown to be false because remember Satan had made the same claim of Abraham that he had made of uh, Job that he would not uh, pass the test. And uh, heaven saw that uh, Abraham would when God required it of him. Uh, it had been difficult even for the angels to grasp the mystery of redemption. Uh, they needed this lesson from humans to understand that God could work with humans to inspire them to see who he really was and that obedience to him was of paramount uh, significance. Now, this is where I'm going to begin and add in the new twist that you may not have heard. Um, this is actually uh, repeated in a couple of places. Uh, this one is Signs of the Times, May 3, 1899. But Ellen White writes... Um, that, uh, and it's also in Desire of Ages, so uh, it is centrally located in one of her most prominent books, but uh, I'll be citing from here. She had slightly adjusted the wording. Uh, Before Abraham was, I am. Abraham greatly desired to see the Messiah in his day. And did you know, did you know that Abraham offered up the most earnest prayer that he might see him before he died? Do you recall that part of Abraham's mind and his, his you know, relationship with God? Did you know that Abraham prayed that he might see the Messiah before he died? That Abraham prayed to see this. Abraham wanted to see this. Abraham desired most earnestly in his heart to see the Messiah before he died. Okay, well, God didn't quite have that in his plan uh, for Abraham to survive all the way through to see the Christ. But he did have a plan to get him almost there. Ellen White writes that Abraham saw Christ. A supernatural light was given him, and he acknowledged Christ's divine character. He had a distinct view of Christ the Messiah. He saw his day and was glad. He was given a view of the divine sacrifice for sin. It was Jesus Christ that had promised him, look now toward heaven and tell me if you can see. Uh, the, to count the number of them, and he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. But Abraham was tested. This is all continuing uh, along in Ellen White's flow here. Abraham was tested. The divine command came for him to take his son, his only son Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice upon a mountain which God would show him. Oh, in what agony of conflicting emotion Abraham bowed at the foot of the altar which he had reared for Jehovah, praying for light. But the more he prayed, the darker his mind became. He heard the command, Take now thy son. 
thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering. And he thought of the promise, as the stars, so shall thy seed be. Yet he was on his way to sacrifice this star son of his in whom this hope was centered. With his own hand, the divine command came that he must cut off the only hope of having this promise made true. But as Abraham stood with knife upraised to obey God, his hand was stayed. And he heard a voice saying, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God. Now I know. <laughs> Again, relational dynamics of, of God speaking. It's amazing that God is a relational God. He does not merely rest in his contentment in his divine foreknowledge, uh, which is another complex topic that I covered a little bit before, uh, but he is a relational God. Now I know that you have not withheld him. Ellen White shares that this terrible ordeal was imposed upon Abraham that he might see the day of Christ. In other words, he might have the answer to what he wanted. Have you ever thought of the sacrifice of his son as the answer to his most earnest prayer? Have you ever thought of it that way? Now, I'm not saying that every, amount, every circumstance of suffering uh, should be thought of this way. I hope that I'm clear in not saying that. But have you ever thought of this, the, the importance of the moral dimension in what our hearts should be desiring and how that reorients the way that we think about the common sense world, the wealth and health world, that we don't think about those things in the same way uh, anymore? Those things dim before us when we really understand and desire God. God is a moral God. Wisdom is located somewhere else, outside of the quest for gold and silver and man's obsessive work toward it. This terrible ordeal was imposed upon Abraham that he might see the day of Christ, implied have his prayer answered, and realize the great love of God for the world, so great that to raise it from its degradation, he gave his only begotten son to a most shameful death. So Abraham had his prayer answered. The angels had their intellectual curiosity satisfied. All that God might reveal who he really is. The veil between God the mystery and God the God that we know is his character. It is not how he appears. It is not how Satan makes him appear, more importantly, more, more accurately. It is not how God, uh, Satan makes him appear to us. It is God's moral character. And that he, he wants us to know. There are aspects to the divine mystery that we will never understand. Ellen White warned us that Satan's, one of his masterpieces, is to always be tempting us to probe deeper into things that we may not understand. But there is one thing that we can know, and that is what God is wearing is what he is, and that is his character. And that is what really, really counts. There is nothing else more important than God's moral character. And what is it? Remember Job 28? The fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. And to depart from evil... Is, is understanding exactly. And so when you want to think about questions of theodicy, uh, another way I've summarized it is, is that uh, philosophy, your rational reasonings will never get there because rational reasonings exclude morality. Morality is a dimension of reality that philosophical questionings about theodicy cannot penetrate. It can't get there. However, when we really care about, when we submit to God, when we are more interested in his moral aspects inside his character, who he really is, what he is really interested in, then we will begin to think differently. And I hope that that, that point is clear, that we will ourselves think differently when we have tied God's morality into the way that we think and the way that we see the world. It changed Abraham's view. Uh, it definitely affected him, and I think it affected Job. And I think that that lesson is implicit uh, in Job's insistence on his integrity because that's what mattered to Job, uh, not uh, 
uh, what his friends said and not uh, anything else. It mattered that uh, he was, uh, had integrity before God. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.